Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 141st episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the literature and ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Daniel James Brown. Before I even get into introducing our very well-known guest, uh, I want to remind all of you who are joining us, whether on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you can go ahead and use the comment section to type in your questions, and we will try to get to as many of them as you can. So our guest, Daniel James Brown, is a number one New York Times best-selling author of narrative nonfiction books. He taught writing at San Jose State University and Stanford University before deciding to pursue a full-time writing career with the dream of bringing historical events to life in vivid, accurate detail. The tremendous popularity of his four books suggests that he has indeed not disappointed. Uh, those books include Under a Flaming Sky, The Great Hinkley Firestorm, The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride, the Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, and his latest book, Facing the Mountain, a true story of Japanese-American heroes in World War II. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start a little bit uh, with your origin story. You were telling me a bit about it um, before we went live in terms of where you grew up and any influences uh, that inspired your interest in, in history and in writing. Sure, yeah. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and um, you know, I came from a house full of active readers. Um, I, both my mother and my father read a lot and my dad especially was interested in history. Um, but I really um, actually was a community college. I went to a community college first and I had an English teacher there who um, was just absolutely fantastic in terms of getting me interested in the world of, of letters. And then I transferred to uh, UC Berkeley. And again, I had a, a series of great professors there, but one, one in particular that uh, you know, I still think of so fondly. So it was really um, uh, you know, some wonderful mentors uh, in the English departments that got me into the world of, um, of writing and working with language. And I've been in one way or another working with uh, the English language ever since as a uh, first, I taught uh, for 12 years, I taught college English. Then I worked for about another 12 years as a uh, technical writer. And um, and then I wound up um, sort of surprisingly, uh, it, was, it started off really as a hobby, just trying my hand at writing history. And uh, very much to my surprise, it turned into a third career. So that's what I've been doing ever since. Love, love stories like that. What, which years were you at Berkeley? I was at Berkeley uh, 72 through 74. So just two years there. Okay. 
So kind of after the whole, you know, free speech movement there. Yeah, right after the free speech, but the campus was still <laughs> pretty turbulent. Uh, so there were there were wow. some turbulent times there. Yeah. Interesting. Um, let's turn to your first book, Under a Flaming Sky, and how your family's history is intertwined with what happened there. Yeah. So. Um, I grew up with um, my mother telling me uh, that her father had survived a, um, a fire in Minnesota in the 1890s and that um, his father had, had died. My great grandfather had died in that fire. And so I had I, and she talked about it occasionally, but didn't really have a lot of detail about it. But I always just sort of wondered as I was growing up, how do you die in a forest fire? Why don't you just get out of its way? <laughs> Um, so it, it sort of always intrigued me. And then a um, number of years ago, I was in the process of moving my mother from the Bay Area up to Seattle, where I was living at the time, and um, and involved carrying a lot of boxes out of her attic and so forth. And in one of those boxes, um, I found a collection of old newspaper clippings and a couple old books and some letters and some photographs about this fire in Hinckley, Minnesota in 1894. And I started reading about it, and it was just amazing. Um, what happened was two forest fires actually converged on this little town in Minnesota um, with under very windy conditions. They tried to evacuate the town. There were two trains in town and tried to back the trains out of town with people aboard. One of those trains caught fire. That's the, the train that my grandfather was on, got a couple miles out of town. Everybody, the train was engulfed in flames. Everybody piled off. People that got off on one side of the tracks died. The people that got off on the other side, there was a sort of swamp there. So my grandfather and his mother survived by immersing themselves in this swamp until the fire passed. And at any rate, there were all sorts of heroics that went on that day. So I I just decided, you know, somebody should write a book about this. I hadn't written a book. And as I say, it started off basically as a hobby. I just wanted to see if I could write a book <laughs> and uh, went to Minnesota, did a bunch of research and um, and it took a while uh, and it got published on a very small level at first, but then got picked up by a, by a bigger publisher uh, later. So that was the beginning of my, my writing career. Well, as someone who uh, myself lost everything in a Malibu fire back in 2007, mm -hmm. uh, started by arson, but was whipped up to epic proportion by the winds, I have a great deal of respect for how vulnerable we can be to the elements, um, but also how proper land management and construction and preparedness and emergency measures can blunt or uh, even prevent such devastation. Was there any learning that came out of the Hinkley fires that led to any progress and preventing or dealing with such disasters? Yeah, um, not specifically out of that fire, but there were a series of absolutely catastrophic fires in the Midwest. There was one in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, which was even more devastating. And then a few years after Hinckley, there was this outbreak of fires all across the Midwest and the, and the Rocky Mountain states. And um, a, a lot of people lost their lives. A lot of people lost property during those years. And so it did It did eventually result in a change in land management um, practices. The principal cause of the Hinckley fire, 
was that in those days, um, the bumper companies would come in. Uh, it was all white pine that they were cutting. They would cut the, the cut the pine trees down, cut all the branches off, and then just leave all the slash, what they call slash, behind, sitting in uh, in the fields. And um, so, in the case of Hinkley, Hinkley was surrounded by thousands of acres of just slash, dried out pine branches, basically, and that like kerosene. So. Yes. Um, so it was just a disaster waiting to happen. And so, you know, eventually uh, better practices came in. So logging companies learned to, to clean up after their operations to burn the slash as they still do and, and, and things like that. So there was, there was certainly a learning, some learning that took place. Speaking of vulnerability to the elements uh, and the progress that we've made in protecting ourselves against fires, storms and environmental pressures, uh, the Donner Party uh, story, The Indifferent Stars. Wow. Um, now that is a story that has, you know, fascinated people for generations. It's inspired countless books and even movies. So what inspired you to uh, take on this territory, no pun yeah. intended, and what fresh perspective did you hope to uh bring to the material? So again, uh, it was a family connection, um, somewhat bizarrely given the amount of time that has passed since 1846 and now. I actually haven't had a, a great uncle. My uh, father's mother's sister uh, married as a very young woman, married a very young man named George Washington Tucker. George Tucker, when he was a teenager, accompanied his father uh, on the first rescue expedition up into the Sierra Nevada, the first people to reach the Donner Party and start start rescuing the survivors. So when I was growing up, my uncle actually uh, had at his house in Santa Rosa the journal uh, of the first rescue expedition. And I remember handling it's now in a museum, but I remember handling it as a child. And and so because, you know, pretty tenuous family relationship, but nevertheless, it made it real to me. Just holding this um, this diary in my hand made it a real thing to me. And so I grew up, you know, fascinated by the story. It's obviously a horrific story on many, on many levels. Um, and so after I had uh, written the, that first book and I was casting around for another one, I decided I wanted to explore the Donner Party story, but I wanted to do it in, um, there's so much more to the story than what comes to everybody's mind at first, which of course the cannibalism uh, in, in the mountains. It's certainly an important part of what happened, but there's so much more to it than that. Um, and again, there's a, um, there are a lot of human dramas that, that uh, transcend that, the horror. So I, um, I cast around and I realized that one of the families, the Graves family, hadn't been written about as much as, as the, most of the other families involved in it. And in particular, this young woman named Sarah Graves. Sarah was um, 21 years old, I think, when they uh, set out for California from Illinois. She had just gotten married uh, the day before they set out, basically. So the 
when they set out from Illinois to go to California, it was almost, you know, a sort of honeymoon situation. This was her and her new young husband setting off into the West where they were going to build a life for themselves. And so she seemed like a really interesting lens through which to see the story. And so as much as I can, I focus that book on on her experiences and, and, and what she went through. It makes it very, very immediate and um, personal. And also that, um, you know, I think in all of your books, there is this element of, of human heroism and overcoming great odds. And, um, you know, I appreciate that you took this approach to a subject, which, as you say, you know, often attracts kind of the, the most sensational interest, yeah. but there's, there's another, and I think, um, really more ennobling side of that story. Exactly. Um, and, and that's what I wanted to focus on. I mean, really, actually, all my books uh, tend to be about um, ordinary people um, doing extraordinary things, ordinary people having to become heroes in, in one way or another. And she seemed like an unlikely candidate at first, but she was one of the few people actually to survive the Donner Party tragedy. And she did that by uh, literally hiking out of the mountains with a relatively small number of other young, healthy people. And so they were able to get word out to the larger um, world, including my great, great uncle, um, that what was happening in the mountains. And so in a sense, she was heroic in that she was able to get out of there and let the world know what was happening. One interesting observation you made in that book was how early Americans had a certain familiarity with death insofar as it was usually family members who would clean and carry and bury the, the bodies of relatives when they passed away. Your remark that uh, this began to change with the Civil War and accelerated after that with the rise of the multi-business, you know, multi-billion uh, dollar industry of comprising funeral homes and undertakers and hearses and cremation, et cetera. And you note how the, uh, as a result, quote, death has become ever more abstracted, pushed ever more into the background and out of sight. That really stuck with me. Would you uh, elaborate on that for us and uh, any reflections on its implications? Yeah. One of the reasons I, I write the kinds of books I do is that I learn a lot from the process of doing the research. And that was something I hadn't really been aware of and hadn't thought about the fact that uh, my great-grandparents' generation, death was much more in their in their face, as you say. They they oftentimes living on the farm wherever they had to handle the body, they had to wash the body, they, the body lay in state in the home oftentimes. So um, death was not um, abstracted. Death was something that was much more familiar to them. And it's kind of a two-edged sword. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I appreciate the modern fact that I don't have death staring me in the face every day that, that other people deal with that part of it. But on the other hand, I suspect that in some ways they saw death uh, in a more uh, natural way that we do and saw it in a more realistic way than we do. We, we tend to be very surprised when death, <laughs> death raises its, its head because we just try not to think about it and, and we don't have to think about it for the most part until 
course, a relative is ill or whatever. So, you know, it's a, it's a two-edged kind of thing, and I'm not sure uh, that I'd want to go back to those days in, in that regard. But it's it's an interesting thing to think about uh, how uh, how abstracted, how removed uh, death has become uh, for us. Yes. Well, we think of the Stoics and their adage of memento mori and remembering mm -hmm. death and certainly from um, an objectivist point of view as a philosophy that's about living on earth, um, not pushing death completely to the background and remembering that it is there for us even as we continue to pursue these wonderful new technological advances to um, expand the lifespan and enhance uh, our lives to keep in mind that that this is uh, not a dress rehearsal and yeah. that we, we uh, need to seize every moment. Yeah, so. and in, in a way that enhances life. I mean, it's, it's um, I, I try, <laughs> you know, I try to wow. keep it somewhere in, in, in mind because it does make you appreciate every day. Yeah. And this often happens if you lose a close relative or something, um, it, it reminds you that you, you really do need to get up every morning and, and, and take advantage of the fact that you are getting up this morning uh, and, and, you know, do what you can with your life in a positive, in a positive way. Uh, and I do want to move on to facing the mountain, but I was just really so um, entranced by uh, the indifferent stars above. And I'm curious if in writing that book and immersing your, yourself in the lives uh, of the Donner party members, were you able to observe any traits or tease out any patterns of what beyond the physical characteristics. And I thought that was very interesting in and of itself that, yeah. um, that the female members of the party had a better chance of, of surviving, tend to think of women, uh, particularly at that time as uh, having higher mortality and, and frailty. Um, but beyond these physical characteristics, uh, any other traits um, that helped some individuals endure uh, where others turn to the wall. Yeah, and well, I, as you say, the most interesting thing was that women uh, out-survived men by a very large, uh, uh, very large number. It was really startling when I when I read that. Um, and I think I think part of that is well, part of that is was physiological and physical. Uh, women tended to have more fat reserve on their body, and there were there were, um, the men were expending more energy out shoveling snow and cutting wood and things like that. So they burn through their available calories sooner, but those are all physical things. Um, I think part of it may have been um, the people who survived, I think tended to have a more uh, optimistic view of the world and of the possibilities that they would survive. Um, and then the other thing is a, another reason a lot of women survived is that they were, they had children. And they were highly motivated to take care of their children. Um, I, I mean, you would think men would be too, but there is a sort of maternal instinct that made some of those women absolutely ferocious in their determination to to get their children out of this alive, one way or another. So I think I think that was probably part of of the difference between uh, what was going on with with men and and women also. 
I, I think that's really interesting, the optimism, because I know sometimes I will deal with people who take a very negative view um, of the world and everything's going wrong. And, you know, I would also be non-objective to be Pollyannish, but I think that, um, you know, you can, it almost verges into this kind of fatalism which truly is very, very dangerous to kind of give up your agency and um, to just say, you know, well, to, to hell with it. I always say nothing is truly lost with no chance of reversal or, right. uh, you know, until, unless we believe it is. Yeah, and I think agency is a good way to think about it. I mean, asserting your agency, clinging to your agency, holding on to your agency in real, in really dire situations, um, is often the difference between surviving and not surviving. Yeah. You know, both medical emergencies and also various kinds of you know, catastrophes that might befall you. One more question on um, the indifferent stars. Uh, in following the lives of the survivors, and I thought that was also a really interesting aspect of your book, um, and the feelings that they had to deal with ha having been uh, reduced to cannibalism, you describe guilt uh, and its close cousin shame, but you say that they are not the same. Can you untangle them for us? Yeah, I did some research on that, um, and uh, it was interesting to me. So it's 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 hard to explain and untangle, but basically, uh, guilt is um, something we all experience. It's when we know we have done something that we shouldn't have done. But guilt oftentimes comes with the sense that, all right, I'll I'll do it right next time, or I I find a better way to do it. It often comes with a sense of redemption is possible. Shame is a public thing. Uh, and shame is the feeling that you have done something wrong in the eyes of God or in the eyes of mankind. And that is a much more toxic thing because it involves, uh, it brings humiliation into, into play. And it's much harder to recover from shame than from simple guilt. And so in the Donner Party course, I mean, breaking this taboo uh, about consuming human flesh, they all turned their backs to one another when they actually, when it actually came down to, you know, having to do that. And it was, it was shame. They didn't want to be seen doing what they were doing. So it's harder to shake that off. It's just a more toxic emotion because it, it brings in the element of, of humiliation and public public shaming. You know, public shaming is actually often used in different cultures as a severe punishment, putting people in stocks, or there's all kinds of ways that people can be humiliated uh, and shamed as a, as a form of punishment because it is, it hurts so much. It's so very toxic. Yeah, it just brings to mind the images from the um, Mao's cultural revolution and um, the you know struggle sessions and the yeah. um, wearing of, of of the dunce cap and and all of that and uh, that in turn led to its own literary genre the scar literature uh, that yeah. came after that time it's very yeah. poignant all right let's turn to facing the mountain Dale Akuno a member of the Atlas Society uh, who is himself Japanese 
American recommended it to us. And as a result, um, many of our younger team members read it and universally, universally they were not aware at all of this history. Is that your experience with uh, younger readers as well? And if so, any thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, so I was so surprised, um, you know, we're talking about the, uh, well, we're talking about the incarceration of Japanese Americans in these camps in the American West. Um, and then the book talks about the military service that um, some of the young men uh, performed during World War II coming out of those camps. I was surprised, actually, first of all, I grew up on the West Coast, and so I grew up with a lot of Japanese American friends, my father's business. We had a, we had many, many Japanese American business partners. So I grew up with a, an awareness of this from my earliest memory. I was very surprised actually dealing with my publishing people on the East Coast, how um, how few of them were familiar with, with the, the history, uh, first of all. And then in terms of young readers, I don't know yet. We actually have a young readers of that. We're just now preparing a young readers edition of that book that will come out uh, later this year sometime. And so we'll see. Um, but I'm not, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised that a lot of young people have never heard of that, that part of history. Um, partly because the generation of Japanese Americans who experienced the camps, um, uh, the Nisei generation tended not to talk about it very much, even with their own children. And um, and so it went largely uh, unnoted or sort of suppressed even within that community, uh, let alone in, in the larger, you know, American community. So I'm, I'm not terribly surprised by that. But it'll be interesting when this Young Readers Edition comes out to see what, uh, you know, what that age group thinks of it. Oh. Um, now, if I understand correctly, uh, Facing the Mountain grew out of your work with uh, Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Would you tell us a little bit about that? So Densho is, um, there's a fellow in Seattle named uh, Tom Ikeda. Tom is um, a Japanese American and he um, has spent the last 25 years um, collecting, videotaping, recording, uh, interviews with um, Japanese Americans of that generation, Nisei uh, Japanese Americans, um, both people that were in the camps and people that fought in the U.S. military uh, during that period, and also their Issei parents um, and their immigration stories and all that. So Tom has for 25 years been going out, interviewing people, videotaping the interviews, and then making them available to anybody on the Densho website. So it was actually when I met Tom in Seattle, uh, we were at both at an awards ceremony and uh, I was getting an award for um, Boys in the Boat and he was getting an award for his work at Densho that we, we, we met each other. And he told me a little bit about what he was doing and the Densho project. So I went home that night and I sat down and I just randomly started watching and listening to some of these oral histories that he had collected. And I was just blown away by, by many of the stories because these people endured so much and, and had so many uh, interesting stories to tell that I pretty much decided that that day that I was going to try to forge a book out of it. So over the next couple of years, Tom and I worked very closely together to try to find uh, the stories that would 
um, collectively tell at least a big part of that story, if not the whole the whole thing. So Tom was uh, Tom's been a partner with me on that book from from the very beginning. The numbers of Japanese Americans in the U.S. during uh, World War II is dwarfed by the number of German Americans and Italian Americans. Uh, yet the treatment was quite disparate. Can you break that down for us to give us a little bit of context and any thoughts on, on why that was? Yeah, so there were, you know, there were a, a relatively small number of uh, German Americans and um, German citizens living in America and also Italian citizens living in America who were, um, for one reason or another, on the FBI's radar. They belonged to certain groups or there was some reason to suspect their loyalty for, for for very specific reasons, and so there were there were there were some who were um, held during the war, but those numbers are absolutely dwarfed by Japanese Americans, all of whom were in all of whom on the West Coast were incarcerated, um, whether they had any kinds of affiliations with Japan or not, and many of them didn't. A lot of them, particularly the Nisei which is growing up as all American kids until until the war started. So, you know, the difference, frankly, was was racial. Um, uh, German Americans and Italian Americans look like Polish Americans and Irish Americans and English Americans and Norwegian Americans and, and all the rest of us. Japanese Americans were easy to identify uh, by their features as, quote, the enemy, uh, even though, in fact, they were loyal Americans. So it was easier to um, see them as the other. It was easier to see them as somehow associated with, you know, this very vicious enemy that the Imperial Japan was. Um, and that really became the basis for treating them differently. Interesting. All right. I am, uh, we've got quite the backlog of questions from our viewers. So I'm going to weave a few of those in uh, if you don't mind. And if you're not up for the question or don't know, we've got plenty more and I have a lot of other questions myself. So um, we'll take, we'll take a few. All right. Um, From Facebook, Candice Morena says uh, that she has a son who works as a, uh, works as I think an aide or something for an English professor um, and he complains about new college students struggling in English class. I'm wondering if um, maybe tell us when you left teaching and whether you, you saw a decline in um, English uh, and reading and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I did. I mean, and I I was teaching a long time ago. It was in the uh, 80s that I was teaching and I, I also, I taught a wide spectrum of students. So at San Jose State, I taught a lot of students um, from disadvantaged backgrounds who had very, very poor preparation for, for college writing. So I was teaching, um, you know, courses that were designed to get them ready for regular freshman English classes. At the same time, I was teaching at Stanford where I was teaching kids who had never gotten anything but an A in their life and who were already very, oh, believe me, the the first time I gave a B to a student at Stanford, she was in my office in tears. It was horrible. 
Um, so, but so I taught a, a wide range of students in terms of how prepared they were for just sort of basic uh, college level English classes. Uh, and the, so the Stanford students were exceptional. Uh, they had been ex prepared exceptionally well, and that wasn't surprising. It was in terms of, I also taught just sort of regular freshman composition classes, English 1A and 1B. Um, it was discouraging actually how poorly prepared, even in the 1980s, um, my students were. I, I came out of that experience feeling that um, earlier schooling was not you know, adequately preparing them for, for college because more and more of them uh, and I, it's, it's just true to some extent uh, during the years I taught, it seemed to get worse as time went on. So yeah, I, I, um, it was a somewhat discouraging experience, I would say. Yeah. So we just saw the, the news that in, uh, Chicago, not one student, none in 60 schools, uh, were reading at, at grade level. Yeah. So definitely. I, th I, I think it's gotten worse since I was teaching, too, from everything I, I read and people yeah. I know who still teach. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, on Instagram, my modern gall asks um, you, as a writer, what do you think were your biggest hurdles to get books done or any special, oh, yeah. you know, program or, <laughs> you know, like all writers, uh, I mean, getting the writing done was never hard for me. I just, I like to write. I like to do the research. That that part is fun. So I've never, and I don't really struggle with, you know, writer's block because I'm not doing creative writing. I'm I'm writing history. So the material's there. So the writing part has never been hard. But like everybody else, I had a terribly hard time getting published originally. Um, the reality is that to get published by any of the, big New York publishers who control most of the books you're going to see in the bookstore. Uh, you really have to have an agent. The agents are absolutely swamped by people who are trying to get representation. So I went through the same thing that, that everybody else does. I sent, when I, I wrote that book about the Hinkley fire, I wrote the whole book first. I didn't realize that you, with nonfiction, you don't actually have to write the whole book first. You can sell the book just on the basis of a proposal, but I didn't know that. So I wrote the whole book and then I went out and tried to find an agent. And I'm sure it was at least two years of sending out query letters and getting rejections. I have a shoebox full of rejections and- um, You ever wanna just go back and <laughs> <laughs> call those yeah, guys and, and say, hey. say, yeah, wait, please. Uh, it was very, very discouraging. I, was, yeah. I remember one day I was particularly discouraged and my wife had to sort of put me back together. Um, but um, eventually I found an agent who sold that book for a very, very, very small advance to a quite small publisher. But my break was not getting her as an agent, but um, Barnes and Noble, the book score chain had a program, maybe they still do, they called Discover Great New Writers, where every quarter they they select, I think, 12 books, and they put them on a special rack out in the front of the bookstore. And so they chose that Inkley Fire uh, book as one of those. And then that caught the attention of Harper Collins, a big publisher in New York, and 
And so at that point, my writing career took off when when they decided to pick it up and publish it. But I mean, it, it's hard. The, rea- the hard part is getting that agent. Once you get an agent, they can usually find a place to sell your book and 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 then things tend to get a lot easier from there. So that theme that runs through so many of your books of, of hope and yeah, perseverance exactly. and not giving up uh, was yep. one that you can speak to from personal experience. Yeah, perseverance is is very much, you're right, it's runs through all my books. It's also very much um, the, uh, the story of my writing career. All right. Um, this is an interesting question from Facebook. Zachary Taylor uh, asks, looking towards the future, when people try to write about events that are happening today, do you think it's going to be harder for people to do research due to the volume of information preserved online, if not all of it being true? That's a good question. Um, I think it'll be easier because of the stuff that's online, actually. I mean, I have to tell you that my writing career sort of coincided with the gradual evolution of the internet and how much stuff is available online. So when I wrote that Hinkley Fire book, I had to go to Minnesota. Well, I wanted to walk around on the ground and see the terrain and see the place for myself. But I also spent days in um, St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, in the uh, family, the Minnesota's Histor- History Center, I think it's called, big archives anyway of Minnesota history. I had to go in and physically you know, look up and pull out newspapers and microfilm and physically search through um, boxes of material to get the source material that I needed to write that book. By the time I got to my most recent book, Facing the Mountain, virtually everything I needed in terms of source material, I could get on my computer, which was fortunate because I was finishing it just as the pandemic hit. Um, but between all the interviews that Tom has digitized and put on the Den Show site and a million other things that uh, are now available, it's much easier for me to write a, a, a narrative nonfiction book like this now than it was um, 20 years ago. So, so looking forward into the future, I, it's true there's a lot of bad information on the internet, and that's certainly your job as a writer is to weed that stuff out. But the reality is just the accessibility of the information is just remarkably easier than it, than it ever has been before. Well, I can sympathize with that evolution. Uh, I was a speechwriter for uh, George Bush Sr., and at that time, there was no internet. So, you know, <laughs> you had to go to the library and yeah. read through all of these old speeches and yep. figure it out. So absolutely much, much easier to uh, to do that in this day and age. Okay, yep. another um, interesting question from Ellen Erin Carr on uh, Instagram is asking, the Donner Party is widely talked about today, but with the difficulty people had traveling during that time, did their situation stand out as extreme even then? What was kind of the contemporary's reception to to the news? Yeah, I mean, I I think it did stand out partly, I mean, mostly because of the whole cannibalism thing and the fact that the 
the press made a big deal about that after the survivors staggered down out of the mountains. The, you know, it was sensationalized right away. But but he, he, the, the viewer is absolutely right. Um, the whole endeavor was hard and it wasn't just hard for the Donner Party. It was hard for all these thousands of people who set out, uh, you know, to, to travel across the country basically on foot because they, they traveled by covered wagon, but they didn't ride in the wagons. They walked alongside the wagons for, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred miles. There were snake bites, there were ticks, there were broken bones, there were ordinary courses of diseases, there was searing heat, there was, you know, obviously the snow in the Sierra for the Donner Party. It, it was, these were incredibly hard endeavors for everybody. And, uh, I, I, and I think if you read The Indifferent Stars Above, you start getting a sense of that even long before they get to the mountains. The, by the time they got to the mountains, they were sort of already falling apart. There had been a killing in the party and um, morale was getting very low. And so before they even became snowed in, things were starting to spiral down for them. So yeah, it, they were not atypical except for the tragedy up in the mountains. Just out of curiosity, did you happen to watch any of Taylor Sheridan's uh, 1883, which is a prequel to his Yellowstone? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, yeah, well, we, um, curious to uh, to hear if you ever get around to it because uh, it's it's pretty brutal and and tragic and and actually think that he did not uh, did not sugarcoat things much because um, it uh, it does provide a perspective on how um, really brutal life could be back then. Yeah, I mean, I'll mostly just, one of the things I wanted to do in the book, and occasionally readers complain about this, but mostly they don't, is um, these were young women traveling across the plains, and a lot of the things they had to deal with were just hygiene issues and things that you wouldn't, you know, things that would were relatively easy to deal with back home on the homestead were really hard to deal with on the trail. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. All right. I'm going to beg uh, patience from all of the people that are continuing to send in these questions. Um, I have a few of my own I'd love to get to before we dive back into viewer questions. So, Envy is a theme that we uh, focus on a lot here at the Atlas Society. Um, it's an unspeakable emotion that Ayn Rand described as the hatred of the good for being good. And reading about the rampant racism against Asian Americans during the time of facing the mountain, uh, it seems there was an element of envy at play uh, that the Japanese Americans worked too hard or that they were too industrious. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, there's actually a quote in the book. I, I can't quote it exactly, but Senator Phelan, California Senator, um, represented, uh, well, he represented the state of California, which was an agricultural state primarily at the time. And he was extremely virulently against uh, the Japanese uh, immigration to California. Specifically because, and he was very, he was very specific about this. He said effectively, because they work harder, 
than we do. And they know, they know better how to get crops out of the soil than we do. And for that reason, we mustn't let them continue to enter the state. And he was very explicit about it. Very, he basically just said that they're smart, they work really hard, they know what they're doing, and, and this is a dire threat. So Yeah, I, I guess that would be maybe the opposite of a backhanded compliment. This was like a backhanded insult, but it actually <laughs> was pretty uh, an amazing statement, I thought. Yeah. Um, all right. Speaking of Rand, again, she says she had an observation of all of the statist violations of individual rights in a mixed economy. The military draft is the worst. It is an abrogation of rights. So uh, military draft factors very large in your book and in those times. How did it impact in particular? What did it bring up for uh, Asian American soldiers? Yeah. So, I mean, that I'm not a fan of the draft either, actually, but um, although I also recognize, I think it's necessity in certain circumstances, but that's just my opinion. Um, for the Japanese Americans I'm talking about, it was a real problem. So what happened was, first of all, right after Pearl Harbor, a lot of young Nisei men went down to the selective service offices like their friends in high school, their neighbors, all these young men were going down to select service office and signing up in early in 1942. When they went downtown and went to the selected service office and tried to enlist, they were, they were told they couldn't, that they were, although they were American citizens, they were considered something called alien enemies. And this just like horrified and shocked these young men um, because they were in fact just entirely American. Um, so for a year, they lived with that, you know, sort of indignity. Um, and then a year later, the Roosevelt administration reversed course and it decided, well, all these young men are sitting around in these camps and, and they want to fight. So we're going to start drafting them. Well, first, they, they just made them eligible to enlist. And then they began to impose a draft on them. And for... Um, did I, I think your, your camera them? went off. Yes, you might want to just... Uh, there we go. Right. Well, favorite. talk talk about uh, bait and switch or mixed messages. <laughs> yeah. So, enemy. I mean, now yeah, sign so up the, for the draft. So, what by 1943, they were um, at this point now, they're being drafted, but they're being drafted out of these camps where, you know, their mother and their father and their sister and their grandmother and their grandfather are all living behind barbed wire. And now the government is drafting them. So, some went, happily went off having been drafted, but others were really bitter about being conscripted into a, a military that was simultaneously holding them behind parked wire in these enclosures. So it became a really, actually it became a really um, a kind of a flashpoint within the camps between different family groups within the camps. There was a lot of disagreement in the camps about what the right thing to do was, whether the right thing was to resist the draft given the circumstances or to comply with it um, as a way of showing loyalty to the United States. So um, there was a lot of there was a lot of internal tension within the communities in the in the camps. 
Well, so let's talk about the 442nd Regimental Combat Team that you follow. Um, they are today remembered as the most decorated unit for uh, its size and length of service in the history of the U.S. military. What accounts for this outstanding achievement? They really were. It was, they were absolutely an amazing fighting force. Um, you know, in terms of what accounts for it, I think there's a couple things. Part of it is that those who did enlist or who complied with the draft, um, they were fighting, they, they felt that they were fighting for something very specific, which was to earn the respect of their countrymen, to prove their loyalty. And they felt that when they came back after the war, surely things would be better for Japanese Americans and Asian Americans in general, if they came back with decorations on their chests and wounds and so forth. So part of it was that they fought ferociously because they had something to prove or they felt they did. And then it, an interesting part of it, I think, is that a lot of these kids did grow up in families, although they were thoroughly American, their parents were Japanese. And so a lot of them grew up with um, the traditions and stories of the samurai and the samurai code. And um, particularly the kids from Hawaii, uh, a lot of them internalized that. A lot of them grew up watching uh, samurai movies and things like that. So when they went into battle in, the, in Europe, fighting against the Nazis, um, they, they carried a lot of that samurai code with them. They they were not going to bring dishonor on their families. Actually, one of the things that came up over and over with these young men is when they left home, when they went off to basic training in Mississippi, the last thing their fathers said to them over and over and over was, well, son, you know, fight, fight well, do well. I hope you come back unhurt. But above all, don't bring dishonor on the family. And, and so they had this very Japanese uh, ethic going for them, even as they were fighting as, as Americans. In describing life within the Japanese American concentration camps, do you capture both the suffering and humiliation, as well as the very inspiring efforts of prisoners to uh, make life a little bit more livable. You wrote, quote, doctors, lawyers, architects, farmers, carpenters, truck drivers, florists, and electricians all brought their specialized skills to bear on improving the quality of camp life. And increasingly, there was a sense of pride arising out of their shared experience in the face of cold injustice and profound humiliation. They had stood tall. They had nourished their spiritual lives, educated their children, found a refuge in creativity and productivity. What can this example teach us about facing hardship and injustice yeah. today? Yeah, I mean, that was a revelation to me and something I heard a lot um, from the, I, I interviewed a lot of people who had been in the camps and their, and their, their children. Um, and, it, it, I, and I learned, as I say, I learned a lot from writing these books and this wasn't my own culture course. So I was trying to learn as much as I could about culture. But that that part really interested me too. Um, you know, I just think the lesson is that um, when you are in extremely difficult circumstances, when you are humiliated or put upon, 
that I guess I'd focus on that phrase standing tall. Um, they they took pride in what they were doing. They took pride in who they were. They took pride in educating their children and, and doing as best as they could under these very constrained, difficult circumstances. So, you know, I just think that core of that idea is really is really attractive of standing tall in the face of an injustice or a humiliation like that. Yeah. And um, I mean, there is, of course, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He's describing a um, much different kind of concentration camp experience, but he talks about this difference between those who survived and, and those who um, perished uh, in one aspect was that those who were able to find that thread of meaning, uh, whether it's the Donner Party mother trying to get her child out of uh, danger, or you know the Japanese American soldier fighting for you know his sisters and his mothers back home, and so that right. they would not suffer uh, this kind of indignity. Um, and then just creating something beautiful, even in an ugly place. And actually, and part of a part of what really was enlightening to me also was was the creating something beautiful part of it. it, it it's really amazing the uh, quality and the quantity of artwork that came out of these camps. I mean, people obviously had a lot of time on their hands. These are people that had been running businesses or or not managing a farm or whatever, and then all of a sudden they're in these camps and and they're being fed three times a day, but there's not a whole lot to do. So a lot of them uh, found artistic outlets and uh, produced a lot of incredible art, water, beautiful watercolors, carvings, statues, all kinds of things. It's really, really remarkable. Fascinating. All right, well, we are just about out of time. So I'm going to grab this last question uh, from Mark Shoup um, as it, dovetails into something I think probably a lot of our viewers are, are curious about. And um, he wants to know, when do you expect Boys in the Boat to be made into a feature film? Um, for those who don't know, uh, it was, I believe, optioned by um, MGM and uh, George Clooney to be made into a production. So, um, he would love an update on that and also um, asking if in the couple minutes we have, if you could elaborate on the individual virtues of the Huskies crew that were essential to be selected. Uh, sure. And your take on the swing of the boat. <laughs> Thank you for a fabulous story, Mark says. Okay. Um, in terms of the movie, um, yeah, it actually will be coming out later this year. They've actually finished filming. Uh, it's in post-production now. Um, I, I don't know a lot about it, to tell you the truth. Uh, Mr. Clooney called me and we had a nice conversation a uh, year and a half ago, I guess it was, when he was just starting to work on it. And um, I liked his take on the book. I thought he was saying, you know, the right things about it. Um, but I am going to be as surprised as anybody else to see what comes out of the uh, sausage making machine, but and I don't I don't know a specific release date, but it's supposed to be before the end of the year. So, so that's coming, um, and I'm excited about it. 
uh, terms of the Huskies, you know, um, that's a really that's a really big question, actually, what set them apart. But I would say that they were the right um, admixture of young men. You know, a rowing coach once told me he would never take the biggest, strongest eight men or eight women and put them in a boat and expect them to beat other boats. That um, it's putting a great crew together is really a matter of mixing and matching different skill sets, both physical skill sets, but also psychological attitudes. So you need somebody to fire the boat up at certain points, but you also need somebody to steady things down at certain points. You need big, powerful people in the middle of the boat, but you need relatively lightweight, technically skilled people in the front of the boat. So it's all about mixing and matching and putting together a formula that works. And um, I think that by the spring of 1936, uh, Coach Albrookson at UW, um, finally, after, after a long time of tinkering and not getting it right, finally, it's actually when he put Joe Rance in the boat that it really started taking off. And it's actually interesting if you look at his log books, the day he put Joe in that number seven seat, the boat went faster than it had gone before. And then the next for the, over the next weeks, it just kept going faster and faster. So he finally found the right combination as the point. Fascinating. And also in terms of the, the combination uh, in following uh, Joe uh, Rand's story of, again, a character who uh, had to deal with a lot of hardship, who had to yeah. uh, develop a lot of grit in terms yeah. of the, the losses that he uh, suffered as a young man and the poverty that um that he endured and how that um and and just having to to deal with uh you know the other students and and their kind of disdain or yep. whatever that it it made him uh a lot mentally tougher in addition it, to not just physically it tougher. did and joe, i mean joe is a remarkable guy another thing remarkable about joe though i mean he had all this grit and he, he found you know he stood tall the thing about joe though was that um because he was abandoned by his family and he had to survive on his own for so long, he he came into rowing kind of with the wrong attitude. He felt like he had to do everything by for himself and by himself. And so he was always trying to row the boat across the line as if there was nobody else in the boat. And what he had to learn was to fit in with the rest of the crew members and uh, to primarily to trust the other people in the boat that they also were doing everything they could. So trust was something he did not have based on his family history when he came into it. By the time he finished that crew program, they won the gold medal. Uh, you know, trust was the basically the lesson he had learned. And is Joe the man that you met that was a neighbor? Yeah. Yeah. So Joe's daughter lives uh, joining property to mine and. Uh, and that's, again, just a personal connection with, with to a book. Wonderful. Have you settled on your next project? Uh, not exactly. I'm going to try writing a novel for a change. I, uh, I have no idea whether I can write a novel or not. I've written a hundred page of something and we'll see what, what it turns into. It's just an experiment. Well, well, we know how your first experiment turned yeah. out, so. We wish you the best of luck and we're very grateful 
for the great joy that you've given us with your amazing great books. So thank you. Thanks well, for thank joining you. us. Thank you for having me. And a thank you to all of you who joined uh, with your amazing questions. If you enjoyed this video or any of uh, our other materials, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to atlassociety.org. And join me next week when author Mark Morano will be our guest to talk about his book, The Great Reset. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank